Thank you for joining us on the Desert Life Church podcast. It's our prayer that you encounter God through this message. Now, let's join our lead pastor, Pastor Ben Tiffey, for an inspiring message. If we haven't met, my name's Ben Tiffey. It's my joy to be the lead pastor of this church. And today, you've come at the right time. We're beginning a fresh series today, starting in June. It is called Get Your Gear On. And uh, how many people are glad they came to church with some gear on today? I am, and you should be. Uh, And we are going to be looking at Ephesians chapter 6 from verses 10 to 18, where Paul encourages the Ephesian church to take their stand against the powers of darkness by standing in the full armor of God. And we'll be doing that sort of every week through June, other than the 23rd, where we are bringing our missionary field workers from China. We're not allowed to publicly publicize them, even that they're coming here, uh, but they're coming and they work clandestinely in that nation, have for many, many years, doing a wonderful job. And we've been partnering with them in some very strategic ways, ways we cannot often talk about publicly, Uh, but they're going to come and they're going to spend some time with us over that weekend ministering to us. And I just said to them, they can talk about whatever they want. They don't have to stick with that series. Is that okay? Good. Okay, good. Excellent. It is said that a giraffe's neck is so long that by the time its coffee reaches its tummy, it's cold. I saw it on a meme the other day and it it said this, a giraffe's neck is so long that by the time its coffee reaches its tummy, it's already cold. But you don't think about that, do you? You only think about yourself. (laughs) How many people are glad their coffee was hot when it fit their belly this morning? Or your chai camel milk latte or something like that? The truth is we do think about ourselves a lot, don't we? What do you think about when you think about you? What do you think about when you are thinking about yourself? There's all types of different ways. and In fact, what I should really say is, which moment am I talking about when I'm asking you what you're thinking about when you're thinking about yourself? Because in some moments, you think you're pretty good, don't you? I'm not accusing you. I'm, I'm one of you, so this is also confession. I'm going to project my problems onto you and make myself feel better for a minute. Is that okay? So you think about yourself sometimes, don't you? And you feel pretty good about yourself, don't you? Sometimes you self-love. But then other times you think about yourself and you feel pretty bad about yourself, don't you? I don't know, there's all sorts of doubts. There's all sorts of distractions that you get distracted by. And then when you get distracted by them, it compounds your self-doubt because you think, surely I should be better than this. Don't you? I do. Um, You get distracted. Sometimes you get discouraged because you're so conscious of the opportunities in life that you've missed in the past or the ones that you could look ahead and you could predict that they might present themselves except you're you and are you up to the task? Are, Are you capable? Do you have the capacity? Do you have the resources? Do you have the preparation? Do you even have the desire to shoulder the burden of life and do what's required to make a difference in this world? And sometimes you daunt yourself with self doubt. Am I even up to the task? So you don't get out of bed, you just hit play and binge watch a whole seven series of Suits on Netflix or something like that. You get distracted, you get, you get discouraged. Sometimes we're downright disobedient. We know, we know what we should do many times. And we often feel 
shame and, 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 and not self-love, self-loathing. Because we know what we should do. But, you know, take a little look to your left. Take a little look to your right. You know, the people that you're in the room with this morning, often they know what they should do and they don't do it. And we feel compassion for them because them is us. And we do it, don't we? Other times we, we know we shouldn't do something, but we do it. And often that's accompanied by a little gnawing feeling, scratching in the recesses of our soul, saying, oh, I don't think this is a good idea. Or worse, you shouldn't be doing this. Or worse, we're sensitive to the pleading of the Holy Spirit. Please don't do this. Isn't that true? And we have a unique capacity and ability to steamroll through that voice and something that walks with us our whole life. No matter how long we've been following Jesus, really, we're still sinaholics, aren't we? It's said by Alcoholics Anonymous that no matter how long you've been in recovery, that you're always a recovering alcoholic. And you should always treat yourself like a ticking sin time bomb. I actually think that's a good observation from Alcoholics Anonymous because I think the longer we walk with Jesus, yes, the more holy we become, yes, the more sanctified we become, yes, the more we experience transformation. But also notice how easy it is to take a few steps backwards. And we've all heard stories of others and in one way they've shocked us and every time we hear that shocking story we say, I'm just not going to be shocked by this stuff anymore. But it happens and we are shocked. And we shock ourselves, don't we? What do you think about when you think about yourself? Sometimes it's self-love. Sometimes it's pride. Because it's what we do is to, to protect ourselves against the pain of our distractions and our discouragements and our disobediences. Sometimes what we do is we bolster our sense of pride and our ego and we make ourselves feel better by trying to be better and trying to do better, put in more effort, achieve more, climb higher, project something better, buy a new watch, get a new outfit, Get a new haircut. Not from the person who normally cuts your hair, but like maybe see someone else. And then turn up and drum in church the next day. And <laughs> It's a private joke that you're not going to get. I'm really sorry I said that. You know, life is it's, it's full of challenges for us in the way we do it. What do you think about? So I'm just thinking about thinking. It's called metacognition. When you think about what you think about. It's a good word to help you win Scrabble. You have this circuitry in your brain. It's called the default mode network, the DMN. Who loves a good abbreviation? abbreviation thank you. An acronym. I, 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 I preached at a conference last weekend. Thank you for releasing me, by the way. And I went up to talk to the uh, production guy, and I just handed him my Darth Vader USB stick, which is labelled as Darth Tifi. And all our staff know exactly why it's got to be that way. And I handed it to him, just said, I've got some slides and some scriptures and stuff like that. Could you put them up on the screen? And he said, oh, how do you want them? I was like, uh, square on the screen. And, um, and, and then he started talking to me in techno-speak. How many people love a good techno-speak techno conversation? And I, I actually got the giggles while he was talking to me. It was almost like just watching a sunset for a second because in, in less than seven seconds of talking, he had used four different abbreviations. 
Well, it just depends on, the, on whether it's a JPEG or PNG, and it depends on whether we want an SDI or DVI. And I was like, this is just all TMI. <laughs> FYI. Um, and I just thought it, it, it was funny. So you have this default mode network in your head. And what happens is the default mode network has a job. And the default mode network's job is circuitry in your brain that helps you basically not die when you're not doing anything. Okay? What it does is it, it, it ensures that when you do nothing, your brain does something. Okay? Now, often you'll be aware of this because you'll have had a busy day. You haven't had time to do much because you've been running, 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 running. Have you ever had one of those days? Usually it's to do a to-do list supplied to you by your partner in life who just says, all these things need to be done. That's very low. Could you just get a shovel and go a couple of feet through the floor, please? There's still some more time to take up. And so you just do it all and you're doing, doing, doing. And then you finish doing and you get to bed that night and your head hits the pillow. And you go, and you shut your eyes, and then it happens. You just start thinking about everything. You start thinking about that time when you're in grade seven, and you're pushed in the tuck shop line, and you still feel guilty about it. Ever had that? Who's that a word of knowledge for in this place today? What about two days ago in Coles, and you did the same thing at the deli? Just for a kilo of ham. Chill out, people. Chill out. So what happens is the default mode network, it kicks in when you do nothing. So when you relax and when you do nothing, all of a sudden it says, let me take over for you. Okay. And actually the default mode network is predisposed towards negativity. Did you know that? All the neural research says this. And so what happens is all of your weaknesses come to the the fore and you can ruminate on them. All of your failures, all of the bitternesses that you have, all the regrets. You go to bed, you're expecting a good night's sleep, and instead you're rehearsing what you should have said seven years ago in that argument that you had that you're still churning over. All of a sudden you discover all of the names of the people in life who've been promoted ahead of you, and you want them all dead. <laughs> you, you, your life becomes filled, filled with a highlighter pen that goes through your highlights reel and talks about all the bad stuff, all what he said and she said, and you get this spike of adrenaline. Otherwise, you just feel bad about yourself, and you begin to experience anxiety. You begin to invent phobias to lose sleep over, and some of them are real. Like The truth is lions are scary, but you shouldn't you know, lie awake wondering if there's one in your hallway unless you live in Africa in a place with no doors, and then it's a possibility. It's a possibility. So what happens is you always wonder, how come I can't relax? How come I can't do something? And that is because the default mode network kicks in and it's predisposed towards negativity. It's predisposed to distract you with negative things, to discourage you with negative things. And in fact, sometimes it's the reason why some of us suffer from this thing called disobedience is because we allow our default mode network to drive our lives. There's no greater illustration of this than the absolute, um, you know, huge statistics of anxiety that, are, that is caused in our society at the moment. This is what anxiety is. Anxiety is an unchecked default mode network that then creates a hijack in the emotional center of your brain. And then if that remains unchecked, it becomes 
takes over physiology. It actually hijacks your body as well. And so what happens is it doesn't start the moment you have an anxiety attack. It starts the moment you forget you have a default mode network that is trying to take you by the hand and lead you to anxiety town. So one of the ways that you treat anxiety is you help people identify that pattern well before it happens. How do you do that? Well, all of the research on these things says that whether your default mode network takes you to severe anxiety and hijacks, or whether it just takes you to a bit of discouragement and some disappointment, some bitterness, some loss of sleep, some anxiety, low level, um, regardless of where it takes you, the solution is focus. Everybody say focus. Focus is the magnifying glass of the mind. What you focus on looms large for you. Does that make sense? Okay, that's why David, the psalmist, says time and time again, magnify the Lord with me. Focus on God. Take the, magnify, take the magnifying glass of your mind, turn it in God's direction. Then God will seem to you bigger than everything. Do you remember Peter's story? Jesus, you have a very cool barefoot surfing hobby now. Jesus is walking on the water and Peter says, call me, call me, let me do it. How many people love Peter? Don't you think it's cool? I'm not going to lie. I've tried so many times in my backyard pool to do that. (laughs) One day I'll get there. And Peter gets out there and he is walking on the water. But then what happens? There's... Before there's doubt, he sees something. What does he see? Waves. And he feels something on his face. What is it? Wind. Water. Spray. He sees the winds and the waves. And then what happens? What a, wait, what a great story and what a great lesson we're taught, taught by the gospel evangelist about the way we live our lives. The way we live our lives is not to sit comfortably in the boat and avoid everything. It is to hear the call of Jesus to always expand your horizons, get out of that boat, get onto that water, and then keep your eyes on and not looking at the wind and the waves. It's a focus story, and it's a great focus story, and it's a focus story that you can spend hundreds of dollars and hundreds of hours in therapy learning the same principle that your focus is the thing that will write the checks for your future to cash. But your default mode network, and we all have it, so no one's here is being criticised or judged. But the difference is not that we don't, whether we have it or don't have it. The difference is whether we've learnt to train it. Everybody say train. You can condition your default mode network not to take you down the rabbit warren of tragedy and misfortune. Okay? You can condition it. And you condition it through taking the magnifying glass of your mind, your focus, and turning it towards something that is productive. Do you know this? This is true. You can only think one thought at a time. But you can think at the speed of light which is about 1,250 words per minute, according to your process, our processing experts. Okay, At the speed of light, thoughts go, and they translate. It's like a conversation with yourself, 1,250 words in less than 60 seconds. Bam, all that happening in your head at once. But you can only think one of those things at a time. Okay, And so taking focus, taking your mind and focusing on something harnesses the default mode network. So this is the problem that we have in the modern age because when we want to relax, when we want to chillax, when we want to do nothing, we sit there and we do nothing and because we zone out our default mode network, remember, it becomes more active when you do nothing. How about that? 
Okay? So when you do nothing, you should make sure that while you're doing nothing, you're doing something. Okay? And it doesn't have to be picking up a shovel or a hammer or a Norwex mop. It doesn't have to be chopping veggies. It doesn't have to be juggling chainsaws. Um, it, you, you, you just have to focus on something. Okay? That's why you feel better when you go for a walk in nature. The Japanese call it forest bathing now. There's actually places devoted to this. And because of the high stress, high work, go, 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 go thing in modern corporate Japan, executives are going crazy and having breakdowns and anxiety attacks and all sorts of stuff. And so as a way of treating this epidemic that is happening there, they've got these whole areas roped off as natural, pristine, virgin little chunks of forest, maybe in the middle of a city, just a room this big, but a forest. And they get prescribed 15 minutes, 20 minutes, 90 minutes to forest bathe, right? So they can do nothing, but they do nothing while they're really doing something. They have to focus and enjoy the environment and all that. So it's quite amazing, actually. You should check it out. Go for a swim in the forest. How many people desert bathed this week? How many people actually bathed in this cold weather? <laughs> Definitely have to pray for you. Okay, why am I saying all this to you? Well, I'm saying all this to you because the point of the matter is that you and I, we do have our challenges of distraction, discouragement, and disobedience, and we do think of ourselves. And the Apostle Paul writes to the Ephesian church, and he takes the human tendencies that we still struggle with, and he says, let me provide some focus to you so that you would not be hijacked by the schemes and the wiles of the weaknesses inside you and the evil around you. Let me help you focus. And before he turns to Ephesians chapter 6 and talks to them about the battle that they are fighting, how many people know we are in a battle? Two of us. You do realize we're in a battle, don't you? You know that when you became a Christian, you joined the side of light in a cosmic war. That's what the New Testament teaches us. Jesus came demonstrating and talking about it and then left us to carry on his work. Who seems daunted by that? Well, you should and you shouldn't. So we'll talk a little bit about that today. But before you get to Ephesians chapter 6, Paul talks in Ephesians chapter 1 and 2 and 3 and 4 and... Good, thank you. Only the teachers answered. rest of us are still learning our three R's. Um, And he spends a lot of time attuning the focus of the Ephesian church. And he wants to do that because he wants you and I to change what it is when we think about ourselves. When you think about yourself, what do you think? And Paul says, I've got some ideas that you need to incorporate. Got some ideas that you need to lend your focus to. And that's why two things play a massive part in the book of Ephesians. Worship and prayer. Worship is in almost every paragraph, not necessarily explicitly stated as the word worship, but, but the, the idea of worship, the idea of praise, the idea of things being to the praise of his glorious grace, if you've ever read Ephesians. The idea of the church not being filled with wine, but instead being filled by the Spirit, speaking to each other in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. See the, see the difference? Be filled by the Spirit as you worship God. And all the way through, Paul 
inserts this awareness of worship, things being to the praise of God's glorious grace, as he conditions the church to understand worship is important not just because God is an heavenly narcissist that demands we say nice things and nice and good things about him. Worship is important because worship attunes our focus to the ultimate and most important realities behind the fabric of the universe. And for Paul, worship is always corporate worship, personal worship, private worship, that doesn't exist. It's always something done with the people of God. And if you read the book of Ephesians or any of Paul's writings in the original Greek language, he almost never says the word you without it being plural. Think about that. Because whenever we hear the word you, we think about me. But not if you're a Bible thinker. And sometimes our challenges are born out of the fact that we're actually not Bible thinkers. We don't spend enough time swimming in it. I'm not saying this critically, I'm just helping you understand something. That a lot of our challenges are because we don't think like Bible people. Therefore, we don't live like Bible people or believe like Bible people. And you know what happens? And we don't experience like Bible people. And so God has a pathway for us. He has a calling for us. And Paul is at great pains to attune the Ephesians to worship the way they corporately focus themselves. And then funnily enough, it's always linked then to prayer, the way they corporately wage war on darkness, the way they corporately engage with heaven, the way they corporately bring heaven to earth. And a huge and important part of that is in their faith-filled, clinging to God, touching the hem of Jesus' garment, praying together. But before he does those two things, the focus on worship and the focus on prayer, he has this other focus, and it's a focus on knowledge. Everybody say the word knowledge. knowledge. If you were to read the whole book of Ephesians in a sitting, in, you probably can make yourself a cuppa sometime and have a look at it. Then you'll see that this word knowledge, the idea of knowing things, it features heavily in the book, probably as a counter-distinctive to the push in the Greco-Roman world to go and find secret knowledge like magic and witchcraft and power from the secret cults and the mystery religions and the witchcraft and the idol temples in, in, in Ephesus. And it was a really big deal. These, these guys in Ephesus, they'd have little witch doctors that you could go visit. And if you were scared, because it was a very superstitious era, and if you were scared, look, I don't want to get sick because an evil spirit might make me sick because someone who doesn't like me has put a curse on me, then you could go and see one of these witch doctors and you could get them to write a word on an amulet or a piece of paper. And you would put that on your body. You would tuck it into, the, 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 into your shirt. Or if it was on an amulet, a little medallion, you'd, you'd hang it around your neck. And that word was called a word of power. And you'd hang that word of power around your neck and it would be like, now, everywhere I go, I'm carrying that power. There were six of those words. And you could only learn those six words if you were inducted into the mysterious knowledge found in Ephesus in the first century. So the whole city, while they go about their normal lives, raising kids, raising crops, raising cattle, eating cattle, uh, you know, dying, um, being married, being born, going about their everyday lives, educating their children, growing their businesses, studying, learning, chopping their hair, no matter who does it. Um, they, they were doing all that, and then at the same time, they were in a flurry and scurrying around trying to get this secret knowledge that would protect them. How many people know the universe can be a scary place, can't it? How many people know bad stuff happens? And sometimes it's mildly bad, which is just annoying, and other times it's deeply tragic, which is devastating. How many people know what I'm talking about? 
And maybe you've got some of that stuff going on. And This hasn't changed for thousands of years. People have wrestled with the same stuff. There's internal discouragement and, and distraction and disobedience and doubts. And then there's external pressure and adversity, all types of things, isn't there? You experience it because you live in this same universe that the Ephesian church lived in. And the answer in the city of Ephesus was to scurry around and try to get enough knowledge so that you could learn these words of power, that you could put those words of power on your person and they would have some special effect on you. Well, Paul, all the way through Ephesians, uses the word knowledge that he's stolen off the Ephesians. He's stolen it from their culture. They're all flurrying and scurrying trying to get knowledge. And Paul says, there is knowledge. Yes, you're right, there's knowledge. But you guys are looking in all the wrong places for it. And therefore, you're getting all the wrong solutions. And you're trying to get power. And he says, there, there is power. But you've got to make sure you go to the right source. Because just because power is powerful does not make it good, does not make it in harmony with the flourishing of life. And we know that, don't we? You ever heard the saying, power corrupts? And absolute power corrupts? Absolutely. Absolutely. And so this is not new to you and it's not new to the universe. This is just the way that it's always been, that sometimes we have this idea in our head and in our day and age, there wouldn't probably be in a room like this too many of us, although there would be some, that still turn to mystical and spiritual sources of power to meet our needs. But the adage that power corrupts is so real because in this day and age, you've got to be careful what you turn to for power because there are corruptive, powerful forces out there in the universe. And some of them are sociological, like the corrupting absolute power of a dictatorship. But some of them are spiritual and they hover around the atmosphere of places and it takes it on. It's like the very environment has a corrupting effect on people. Have you ever been into one of those places? And so you've just got to be careful what you turn to and who you turn to and where you turn. And Paul is trying to massage the Ephesians, but we're the same. And even in this part of the world, if we talk to some of our Aboriginal people, some of them, they lament the fact that there is such dark power active in certain sectors of their culture and people all make a beeline for it. But they see the long-term effects of it. And I've had people sitting in my office crying their eyes out, lamenting the corrupting spiritual power when people turn to animism and spirits. But, you know, some of us, we're not going to turn to that, but we're turning to money and we're turning to sex and we're turning to pleasure and we're turning to hedonism and we're turning to the television. We're turning to our careers. And we're still making idols, actually. They just don't look the same these days. But it doesn't mean that power isn't corrupting. And so Paul has something to say to the Ephesians before he rouses them with the battle call of Ephesians chapter 6. He massages into them with Jesus at the focus, all of the things that we've been talking about. He has a wonderful, wonderful prayer for them. See the power of prayer. In chapter 1, from verse 15 through to verse 23, I want you just to think about what I've said while we read it together. If you've got your Bibles, go ahead and turn there. I can already hear the pages flicking. Ephesians chapter 1 from verse 15 to 22. Listen to what Paul says. For this reason, you'll have to read the other bits to find out what, the, what he's talking about. Ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus 
and your love for all God's people. I have not stopped giving thanks for you. Remembering you in my prayers, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the Spirit. Everybody say Spirit. Now, my Bible's got with the program theologically and put a capital S there, but many of them for centuries haven't done that. Like as if saying, give you the Spirit is just like a, a spirituality in the general sense, maybe the way it's used by hippies or something like that, okay. But when you see this word ever in, in the Bible, it mostly is capital S, Holy Spirit. I pray that he would give you the Spirit of wisdom, everybody say wisdom, and revelation, everybody say revelation. Paul's prayer, I pray God would give you the Holy Spirit because wrapped up in that, that's the spirit of wisdom and it's the spirit of revelation. It's the spirit that helps you have and know and see and perceive exactly what you need to. And I pray that God would give it to you, Paul says. Spirit of wisdom and revelation. Listen to why. So that you may know him better. How many people just just know that God is infinite? Okay, well, not many of us said yes. So, did you know God is infinite? And uh, I'm finite, and so are you. Infinite God, finite mind. That means there's always going to be more of God I don't understand than what I can apprehend. Did you know that? So, it's good for me to search out all my questions. And I should do that, by the way. But there may not always be completely exhaustively understandable answers to all my questions because my finite mind is grappling with an infinite being and my brain cannot contain it. Understand? If you don't understand, just try to grapple with the idea of the Trinity and then you'll understand. Five minutes into that discussion, you won't even be able to feel your legs anymore. It's the right response to have. Finite God, sorry, infinite God, finite Ben and finite you. So Paul says that to know God better, you actually need an activity of the Holy Spirit in your life. You need the Holy Spirit to come graciously and open your eyes to give you wisdom and to give you revelation. Think about that word revelation. Just Let's just say it, revelation. Revelation is um, in, the, in the ancient language the New Testament was written in, means to pull away the curtain. Ever been to a wedding? Okay, listen, if you guys aren't going to talk to me, I'm taking my bat and my ball and going home. I've only got about five minutes left of this sermon, but I will walk out early. It's the cold. It's the cold. Turn the person next to you and say, wake up. You're sleeping during Pastor Ben's sermon again. He's, that's why people come to church. They can't sleep at night. They come to church and do it. It's a ministry that we provide, giving you a safe space. Have you ever been to a wedding? Okay, there's an awesome part at the wedding where the bride walks down the aisle. And, and traditionally, anyway, it's, I mean, I've been part of some weddings where things are so different these days, where she choppers in and ninjas come down out of the roof and crazy. But, but traditionally, the bride would walk down the aisle and she would be wearing a over her face. Okay, And everybody knows, you know, the truth is, don't brides look awesome on their wedding day? You know, the groomsmen, they get up, play around the golf, maybe have a couple of tinnies and, you know, drag a razor across their face and a comb across their head, pluck some grey out of their beard, and then they just turn up, still tucking their shirt in. And the bride turns up two hours late for the wedding, having got up before sunrise <laughs> to put on what in the hardware industry is known as spack filler on her face. 
looking her best, ruby red lipstick or something like that, little waft of perfume, hair that's like an architectural construct, and 17 cans of hairspray. And she walks down the aisle and everybody's heart melts, right? But one of the best bits of a wedding is when the veil, the bride is unveiled. And everybody goes, <laughs> and the men all go, hey, this is a good time to quickly check the cricket score. Yeah. That's not true. Everybody goes, oh, I mean, we knew she was good, but we didn't know she was that good. We didn't. Have you ever heard an old uncle or something say this to the bride? Well, you scrub up all right, love. My uncle Tom said that to Danielle on our wedding day. Well, you scrub up all right, love. I've said it to her every day ever since. 20 years of hearing it, she's still scrubbing up all right. It's pretty good. It's an unveiling. So, and, 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 or, or, or what about when you go to see a theatrical production, a stage play? Remember those things? And, and, and you'd be wondering, what are they going to do? Danielle and I went and saw Les Mis. Who's ever seen Les Mis as a stage production? And if you've read the book or seen the movies or like, you know, read the short Reader's Digest summary, then you're wondering, how are they going to make sense of all that architecture in a, on a stage? What are they going to do? And then as soon as the first time the curtains open, you're not, you're not coming on this journey with me. It's okay, we're going to move on. We're going to move on. And you go, wow. You, an unveiling, a wow moment. And Paul says, if you think it's amazing when a bride is unveiled, I mean, I haven't even seen any weddings where the guy's gone, oh. <laughs> it's amazing. It's amazing. <laughs> My daughter did tell me a story the other day of a, um, of a wedding video. And there are two kids standing and they're unaware of the camera there. And the groom unveils the bride. And one of the kids goes, oh, she's ugly. <laughs> and it's on their wedding video. <laughs> Shoot, Alex. <laughs> it's never happened. It doesn't happen because there's something breathtaking, isn't there, about a great unveiling. Who loves a good unveiling of something? Thank you. Um, and, and so Paul says that what you need, I'm praying that you get the Holy Spirit because Jesus is amazing and breathtaking. But you require the activity of the Holy Spirit to unveil Jesus to you. You know, you can't logic your way into the kingdom of God, although our faith is very reasonable, rational and logical. But the point is, it's like I could read Danielle's dossier, I could read her file and know everything about her, but knowledge about someone doesn't constitute knowledge of them. Relationship, disclosure, unveiling. We just had our 20th wedding anniversary and we looked back on the day where I unveiled Danielle. Sounds a bit dodgy, doesn't it? <laughs> we look back on the day where we got married. I don't know where your head's at, but mine is in the holy word of God right now. I'm partially thinking about Danielle. Um, and she, she still hasn't changed. Um, you require the spirit to unveil you. Did it just get warm in here? Okay. Somebody says, I, I pray that you would just see the spirit of 
wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray, listen to this, that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. The eyes of your heart would be enlightened. Enlightenment is a Christianish thing. In order that you may know, listen to these three things, the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people, and his incomparably, everybody say incomparably, incomparably great power for us who believe. It actually works against the three things of discouragement, distraction, and disobedience. Did you know that? If you, if you have the hope of his calling, it works against your discouragement. If you know the riches of his glorious inheritance in God's holy people, it's hard to be distracted because you are absolutely amazed. And it's hard to be disobedient when you have an apprehension of his incomparably great power towards us. Notice Paul doesn't say, I want you to experience that power. I wish the eyes of your heart would be open so you could know it. You have it. Do you know you have it? I, um, when I went to the Solomon Islands on a mission trip when I was in Bible college, and I had a leather kangaroo skin hat. Who's seen those ones floating around town? And I tucked into that hat $20 just because I didn't want to have to carry it around. I know when you're a Bible college student, that actually seems like a lot of money, so you hide it in secret places on your person. That hat got stolen. And then it got recovered again, <laughs> all in a very short time frame. And this kid, it was, it was hanging on the door of a cabin I was staying in, and a kid from a village walked past and thought, that's a cool hat, don't see many of them here, and he swiped it. And then I went and spoke to someone and said, my hat got stolen, I'm pretty sure it didn't blow away. And, and they went and asked around the village, and sure enough, as a little kid with a new hat. <laughs> and uh, they found him. Somebody gave him a good whack. wasn't me. Don't report. And, uh, and the hat was returned to me. Do you know what was funny? When I got that hat back, I looked in and the 20 bucks was still there. That kid had no idea what he got his hands on. Yeah. Had no idea. The, 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 back then, the 20 bucks was worth more than the hat was. Yeah. I would have probably forgotten about it. He should have left the hat and taken the 20. He didn't know what was right in front of his face. But do you? We're like that with our faith sometimes. And that's what Paul's saying to the Ephesians. I'm praying that the eyes of your heart would be enlightened so that you would know the incomparably great power of God towards us. Not, I'm praying that God will give you power. He, he, Paul seems to believe this thing. God's already given you power. I'm just praying that your eyes would be open and you'd know what you have. And then listen to what he says. To what us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is invoked, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. See how amazing Jesus is? Jesus was a physically dead body and is now a physically resurrected body who has been physically resurrected and raised into the heavenly dimension, seated at the right hand of God. Now, in all authority, that's what he said to the disciples, the basis we go and make disciples is on the authority of Jesus. Therefore, go and make disciples and I'll be with you till the very end of the age. Okay? 
And Paul says God took him and he resurrected him through an awesome display of power that the universe had never seen before. And he raised him up and he enthroned him. And now Jesus is above all power, all authority, all ruler, every force, every power that corrupts, every power that distracts or discourages or seduces. Jesus has been raised above every power. Just think about that for a second. There's no power above the power of Jesus. Everything is under his feet. And God raised... So this is why Paul's saying that. It's, a, it's, it's like a, a rabbit warren to go off to. Think about how amazing and powerful Jesus is. But remember what Paul said. I pray that the eyes of your heart would be opened so you would know his incomparably great power towards us who believe in him. All that power that raised Jesus, then raised Jesus... I pray you would know because that power is for you. It's toward us who believe. He's not saying, I'm going to pray that you receive power. Come on. He's saying, I pray that your eyes of your heart would be open, church, that you would know what you have. You know, some of us don't even think we have it. See why Paul passionately prays? Actually, that whole passage is just one sentence. <laughs> if you're an English teacher, you're always chipping your kids about, like, put in some punctuation, guys. But when you're copying Paul, you can't because you get so excited about everything. You write 52-word sentences. And listen to what he says. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over Everything. Say the word everything. Everything. Nothing that Jesus is not rightfully Lord over. But then listen to this. And appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Think about that. I pray your eyes would be open that you would know the amazing power of God toward us. You know, that resurrection, Jesus physically raising, then ascension raising, then demon and power, overcoming power that's towards you. And God raised him up and put everything under his feet for the church, which is his body. See, planet earth is without Jesus' body because Jesus' body has gone to heaven. Planet earth doesn't have Jesus' body anymore. Yes, it does. Because now the church is his body. If Jesus' hands are going to go to your workplace, it's because your hands are there. If his feet are going to go there, it's because you're walking. If his love is going to happen, if someone's going to give a cup of cold water, it's got to be done in Jesus' name because he's physically in heaven ruling and reigning. The church, his body. The fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Think about this. If Jesus is to fill something, the church has to do it on his behalf. Okay? I know that I promised you we were talking about Ephesians chapter 6, right? But, but that's the next service. No, just kidding. Um, but see, you can't get there unless you get here. You've got to understand that we, we can wallow in our individualistic discouragement and doubt and disobedience and that our default mode network just take us on these rabbit warrens. Or we can understand that it's not just about us, church, that we're part of a body. And that body has something so beyond us to do 
that there is a world out there of darkness and we'll get there in our next part on this series next week where Paul talks about rulers and authorities and cosmic powers of darkness. But Paul says the church, before he even gets there, is called to be those who understand the power they have in Jesus that can go everywhere and fill everything on Jesus' behalf. So I know that you've got challenges and I know that there's stuff going on for you. There is for me. I know there's all types of needs and at any moment there's all types of chaos that you're wrestling with. But stop for a second and think, who is it that wrestles with that chaos? That's somebody who has access to resurrection power. That's somebody who has access to the might of the name of Jesus. Paul labors. I pray that your eyes of your heart would be open, that you would know the strength of his mighty power. Now come over to Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. You have to know that previous bit because listen how this section opens. Gordon Fee, that great Bible scholar, in fact, all the Bible commentators reference that this final bit of Ephesians, chapter 6, verse 10 to 18, where he says, put on the armor of God, is the conclusion of the letter, the high point of the letter. It is the mountain peak of the letter. And everything Paul has said has been pushing towards that one moment. It's not an irrelevant aside. It is the main game. Everything else was on trade. This is main course. Verse 10 of Ephesians chapter 6. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power. See what He's doing? He's taking you on a journey. The resurrection power, it's for you. I pray your eyes will be open that you would know you have it. Verse 10 of chapter 6. Now, be strong in the Lord and His mighty power. Be strong, mighty, power. Three words, be strong, mighty, power. Remember I was telling you that the Ephesians would go and seek six powerful words. You just read three of them. Three of the words that everybody else in Ephesus is getting a witch doctor to carve on an amulet and stick around their neck. Paul says, you find it in the gospel. You don't need a witch doctor. You don't need an amulet. You don't need a zodiac. You don't need a spell. You don't need a work promotion. You don't need a Rolex watch. Have whatever you want, but you don't need any of it. Anywhere people go for power, for bolstering, for boosting, you don't need it because it is found in the Christian gospel. Be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Actually, if you read the ancient language, it doesn't say be strong, like that's a command. You grammar people, you'll know. In the Greek language, there's this thing called an imperative. I'm telling you, you better do this. That's an imperative. And when you read that, it sounds like an imperative. Be strong. Come on, be strong. But actually, in the ancient language, it's not written as an imperative. It's written in a passive voice, and this is not going to mean much to you other than this. It means not something you do. It's something you let happen to you. If you're an English teacher and you want to teach a kid about a passive voice, you say, Johnny kicked the ball. It's active because Johnny's doing something. He's kicking the ball. Active, imperative. Johnny kicked the ball. But the ball plays no role. It just gets kicked. And that's called a passive voice verb. The ball was kicked. It's just not doing anything. Something happens to it. 
And that's what Paul is saying in this passage. He's not saying, come on, come on, be strong. He's saying, actually, be empowered. Be strengthened. It's a much better translation. Be strengthened. Let God's strength come upon you. Be strengthened in the Lord and in his mighty power. Now, over this series, over this next few weeks, we're going to unpack the rest of Ephesians chapter 6. But today, here's where we're landing. Not enough of us think biblically. Not enough of us think Christianly. And this is not said critically, but the thing is, if you don't think biblically, you can't live biblically. Because to experience what Bible people experience, you have to think like Bible people think and believe like Bible people think. Make sense? So it's not said as a criticism, but I think today some of us, we just need to stand together in the presence of God. In fact, come on, let's do that now. Be strengthened in the Lord and his mighty power. Receive the strength of God. Why don't you just bow your heads, close your eyes all over this room. You know, Jesus who died and suffered for our sin and for our afflictions, for our infirmities, for our brokenness, for our shame, our unrighteousness, our failures, all of our doubt, all of our discouragements, all of our disobedience, all of our distractions. He died to take it all and exchange it for us, his life, his faithfulness, his fruit of love and joy and peace and justice and goodness, faithfulness, kindness, self-control, all these things. Jesus died to exchange our weakness for his strength. I want you to stand, maybe just, why don't you just lift your hands to heaven in this moment? We've prayed together, we've worshipped together. Now we're reminding ourselves of where Paul will take us. Lord, I receive your resurrection power. I pray, God, open the eyes of my heart that I would see his incomparably great power toward us who believe. That I would see the church for what it really is, not just what it looks like to me from my limited perspective. That I would see myself for who I really am, not just from my limited perspective. You are a child of God, my friend. You are blessed with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. You are forgiven of your sin. You are redeemed. You are purchased at a price. And now you are adopted as a child into God's family. You are seated with Christ Jesus in heavenly places. You are joined to him and you are given along with him all power and authority over every principality, over every evil spirit, over every corruptive force, every bit of darkness. You are given authority over it. That means you are now granted the power with Jesus to be raised up again and live a new life, to be raised above everything that's coming against you, every battle that you're facing, every struggle that you have, every temptation. You've got the equipment because you've got resurrection power. You You are the body of Jesus. You're the hands and feet of Jesus, my friend. And you are given his power as a gift in your saying yes to the gospel. So today in Jesus' name, I pray that your eyes would be open, that you would know the greatness of his power towards you today, that you would walk in that authority, that you would walk in that encouragement, that you would walk in that new identity in the name of Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name. Come on, let's fill this place with a shout and a hand clap of prayer praise today in the name of Jesus. Thank you for joining us on the podcast. 
For more information about Desert Life Church, go to desertlifechurch.org or check us out on Facebook and Instagram. Have a great day and remember, you belong here.